If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, how far should police be able to go when it comes to getting drunk drivers off the road? A controversial report recommends sweeping new powers for the CRTC to regulate media content on the Internet. A look at bilingualism and whether Canada is walking the walk. Concern about the amount of space junk after a near miss between two big satellites. Plus, the ethical debate around whether men should be allowed to donate sperm after death. Right, so it's been just over a year. It was December of 2018 uh, when uh, federal laws changed around impaired driving or the tools or the powers police have uh, to screen for impaired drivers. Now, previously, before deploying a breathalyzer and asking someone to provide a sample, there was a requirement of reasonable suspicion. The police officers needed to have a reasonable suspicion that someone had been consuming alcohol before they could demand a breath sample because breath samples are considered to be searches. So this is a case of being searched by a police officer, and we have charter rights when it comes to these these matters. At the same time, governments do have an obligation to ensure public safety, keep our roads safe, and that includes safe from drunk drivers. So where's that line? The government has decided we can eliminate the reasonable suspicion requirement as a way of making it easier to catch drunk drivers. Previously, though, the Supreme Court had declared that that requirement was pretty fundamental when it came to that police power. Uh, So that power has existed now uh, for just over a year, as I say. The police forces do not require any sort of suspicion that any motorist can be asked to provide a breast sample by a police officer. What's unique in the city of Calgary, though, is that they have declared that every frontline officer will have a screening device and every motorist who is stopped by police or passes through a check stop will be asked to provide a breath sample. So this seems to be going beyond even what uh, other police forces and other cities have done across the country. But joining us for some further thoughts is someone who follows uh, all of this very closely, criminal defense attorney Kyla Lee, uh, with expertise in uh, DUI and IRP with Acumen Law Corporation in Vancouver. Kyla, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this, I, I, I can't think of another city or police force that has taken this approach. What was your reaction when you heard about this? I almost laughed out loud because I thought, you know, this is the easiest way to invite yourself uh, to be sued for violating people's charter rights and to get this matter quickly into the Court of Queen's Bench in Alberta, um, where a binding decision will be made on the constitutionality of this provision. Why, why will it make it easier? Is it just because of, of the sheer numbers or is it also the, the publicizing of it? It's a combination of the sheer numbers, meaning that you're going to have more people who are aggrieved by the fact that they've been asked to provide a breath sample when there was no reason to believe they've been drinking. The publishing of it, which is quite a brazen act for police to do when we know that the constitutionality of this law has been challenged and has not yet been determined by the courts. Um, And also the fact that unlike people who are asked to provide a breath sample and ultimately are facing criminal charges, we don't have to wait for the conclusion of, of trials for any of these people. If they pass the test and they feel their rights were violated by being asked to do the test in the first place, they can file a lawsuit and proceed that way and argue that their rights were violated just on that brief moment of detention, even if they suffered no consequences as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it, clearly the government is banking that you know the public interest concern will, will override those constitutional issues regarding uh, arbitrary detention, search and seizure, etc. But where, where do you see the constitutional issues coming into play here? Well, I mean, you have people who are detained. They don't have the right to contact a lawyer. And I know for a lot of people, if you're pulled over by a police officer, you know, because you ran a red light or you didn't stop, you know, completely at a stop sign, you know, things that people do frequently, um, and then you have not been drinking, maybe you've never touched alcohol in your life and you're asked to blow, lots of people's initial reaction is going to be, heck no, I'm not going to do that. 
and then for for the police to to get that answer means that they're going to charge somebody with refusal. They're going to face significant consequences. Um, and I think that's where really the constitutional question is going to hinge. It's, it's the absence of any right to counsel for people to get the advice to know that they're legally obligated to comply, even though the testing is probably unlawful. Well, what do you say to people who, who make the argument that if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to worry about? If you haven't been drinking, you've got nothing to worry about? I, I would say, first of all, that that's the type of thinking that tends to encourage a police state. And secondly, you have a lot to worry about, even if you haven't been drinking. There's research that shows that people who are ketogenic, um, either in uh, diabetic ketosis uh, or people who are eating those very trendy ketogenic diets can produce false readings on breathalyzers. Kombucha, energy drinks can produce false readings on breathalyzers. Even if you're not actually consuming alcohol and you think you have nothing to hide, you may run afoul of the test and then face all of the consequences that go along with that. Was there any evidence suggesting that our, our previous regime had, had shortfalls? In other words, police do have the ability to, to assess whether um, a, a motorist has possibly been drinking, to, to at least build up some degree of reasonable suspicion before commencing a search, before demanding a breath sample. Is, was there a problem that needed to be fixed by this? I mean, I say no, and I know a lot of people will interpret that as being, you know, being me saying that impaired driving isn't a problem, and I'm not saying that. Impaired driving is always a problem, and it's always going to be a problem, and it doesn't matter how significant the testing is or how severe the consequences are for it. As soon as you consume alcohol, you lose your inhibitions, and then making the decision to get behind the wheel of a vehicle becomes that much easier. So this doesn't do anything to address the problem. All it does is allow police to detect drivers who don't appear to be impaired, don't smell of liquor, and don't admit to consuming alcohol, which in my experience as a lawyer is extremely small numbers of drivers um, and never the type of people who end up in these collisions that have serious consequences. Uh, there was a Supreme Court uh, decision some years ago, as I noted, that uh, that addressed the question of reasonable suspicion and the requirement of reasonable suspicion. It was interesting because the court at the time seemed to put a lot of importance in this this requirement. Uh, the government has now decided to eliminate that. So what, how significant was that? What kind of bearing might that have on, on future court cases around this? That has a significant bearing on future court cases around this. The Supreme Court of Canada actually decided that the law allowing roadside breath testing was unconstitutional, um, and it was only the fact that the uh, reasonable suspicion requirement, as well as the requirement that the test be done immediately existed, that allowed um, the, the demand to survive a constitutional challenge. So it was saved, um, is the language that we use. And um, here, once we eliminate that requirement, um, you don't have that same thing that existed to protect that demand, uh, that demand from being struck down for unconstitutionality. And, and those decisions, they are binding decisions on lower courts, are going to have a lot of precedential value when it comes to a challenge of these provisions. Now, there's a case uh, in B.C. That, that is one of the constitutional challenges I'm aware of that's been launched. A woman who was uh, stopped because a police officer had been staking out a liquor store. I believe she'd been returning empty bottles, was unable to provide a breast sample because of uh, her COPD. Um, are, are there other cases that you're aware of, or does it also speak to maybe different approaches that the police forces are taking across the country? There are a number of cases. Um, th that woman's case, McLeod, um, mm. is joined with two others, um, another involving an individual with breathing problems who was asked on two occasions to provide a sample simply for returning bottles, and then uh, a woman um, uh, from Alberta, who I'm representing, who um, was asked to provide a sample, and there was a very long delay before she ultimately um, was given the opportunity to blow. Um, and so those three cases are being heard together because they each raise different types of facts, one about profiling, one about um, uh, the health issues that can affect an ability to comply, and one about failing to comply with the only remaining uh, statutory requirements. There are challenges as well that have been launched in Alberta, in Yukon, um, and in Ontario that I'm aware of. Um, so it's, it's happening all across the country already. It's interesting, too, because, you know, this is referred to as mandatory alcohol screening. And, I mean, it's, it's certainly mandatory for motorists to comply with, with a police order to provide a breath sample. But, I mean, police still do have some discretion. Even though they have new powers, they still have discretion, don't they? 
they do have discretion. And a lot of police officers that I've talked to are not taking the approach that it appears to be uh, taken in, in Calgary. They're telling me that they don't like the idea of mandatory testing. They don't think it's necessary. And for them, they'd rather just do the work that they need to do to form a reasonable suspicion before demanding a person provide a sample. And I'm seeing relatively few cases that actually involve the mandatory alcohol screening demands as opposed to an officer forming a suspicion. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, public opinion doesn't necessarily have any legal weight or legal bearing. But, I mean, if, if, the, if the public starts to lose confidence in, in our laws uh, and they view this as, as problematic... I mean, that, that, that's something we should worry about, isn't it? That is something that we should worry about, and it is something the courts will consider. At all times, the court has to consider public confidence in the administration of justice. And if the public has lost confidence in how justice is being administered in, in these cases because of the way that it's random and it's arbitrary, um, then the court is going to have to put some significance on that in determining whether the law is constitutional. Because we don't want a society where people start to revolt against the law and refuse to comply with it because they've lost confidence in our legal system. That would be chaos. Yeah, indeed it would. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, much more. Kyla Lee, Doncia. You can also, uh, folks, and find you on Twitter at IRP Lawyer. I always appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Thanks for having me. All right. That is uh, Vancouver-based uh, criminal defense attorney Kyla Lee, uh, who specializes in issues around DUI and IRP, on Twitter, at IRP Lawyer, more at KylaLee.ca. Uh, so she's got some, some serious concerns about the constitutionality of this law, and I think for good reason, right? When the Supreme Court upheld... Uh, our, our legal regime previously, it was only because there was that built-in protection. The police needed to have a reasonable suspicion before demanding a breath sample. So I'll be very curious uh, to see how the Supreme Court views all of this. Now, different justices, obviously, for the most part, but uh, that, that's a pretty big change. So police forces right across the country now have that power. They don't need any kind of suspicion, any kind of basis of suspicion. Uh, to demand that you, the motorist, provide a breath sample. So as she mentioned, we're already seeing some legal challenges launched in Alberta, B.C., and elsewhere. But yeah, it is interesting what they're doing in Calgary. seems to go further than any other city, any other police force in the country, to not only, A, make sure every single frontline officer has a screening device, and to declare it to everybody. Let it be known. Everybody who gets stopped by police, every motorist who has an encounter with police, will be asked to provide a breath sample. So even if you think, well, I mean, I don't, I don't speed, I don't run red lights, uh, this is not going to be an issue. Well, potentially. I mean, for one, police don't really need much of a basis to pull you over. But if you pass through a check stop, for example, you're going to be asked to blow. No exception. So... Does this seem like it is uh, an infringement on our rights? Or is this uh, a reasonable approach to dealing with the problem of impaired driving, which we all agree is a problem. If you are impaired by alcohol or drugs or anything else for that matter, but in this context, if you're impaired by alcohol, you should not be driving. If you're impaired by alcohol and you're behind the wheel, you're a threat to others on the road. We all agree on that. This report proposes some pretty sweeping changes to the CRTC and its power to try to regulate the Internet, essentially, both in terms of dictating to companies how they do business in Canada, really to the point in, in terms of how they do business, period. So this is the Broadcast and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel. They've been doing 18 months of work. They laid out their recommendations today. It's now up to the government to decide what to do all of, about all of that. Our next guest certainly has some thoughts on uh, all of this. So you can follow him on Twitter at mgeist or at michaelgeist.ca. Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa. He is Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law uh, at the U of O. Professor Geist, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, oh thanks so much for having me. Uh, you've been following this closely, and I think maybe you had some idea of what was coming today, but uh, I get the sense that even you were surprised by how, how far this report goes. I was, and, and, and I've been writing as early as this, late as this week, some concern about where this might go, anticipating that we were about to see calls for regulation, mandated support for Canadian content in an environment where the production sector is thriving. But I have to admit, I did not anticipate the level of regulatory 
of regulation that this that this report recommends, not just with respect to can news, with respect to news aggregators like Yahoo News or Apple News, with respect to sites like YouTube and others that allow people to post their own videos and content online. It sees all of them as ripe fodder for regulation, mandated contributions, and CRDC, the regulator, intervening directly in what people access and how they can see it. I mean, and to what end? I mean, is is this regulation for the sake of regulation? Is this all in the name of protecting Canadian content? Are we protecting certain players? Is this supposed to be to advance the interest of Canadians and those consuming content? What's the end game here? Well, it's a little bit of all of the above. I, mean, I think certainly there is the issue of the production of Canadian content. The data tells us that the production sector over the last number of years, especially in the Internet era, is enjoying massive growth. In fact, in some ways, there's so much film and television being produced in Canada that there's been too much of a good And it's made it hard for people to get sound stages and increase the cost of doing so. But it's that, the sector is thriving. So I must admit, it, it's challenging to see where the emergency is there. But as I say, this report goes much further. It argues that the media industry, the news industry, of course, we, we know some of those struggles. And so... It envisions a world in which the platforms help pay for that through the CRTC. The CRTC would dictate even some of those news platforms. Uh, What they link to, what's trusted in terms of what you might link to, how prominently you display some of those links. So imagine a CRTC, a federal regulator, telling a Yahoo or a Google or an Apple, you don't have enough links to the following Canadian websites, which we have deemed to be trusted. And we want to ensure that those links are made really prominently as well. Yeah. That's the kind of thing they envision. And they say the CRTC has to have penalty-making power that's sufficient to create real deterrence even for these foreign-based sites. So we're talking about penalties that could run into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, yeah, that's not just regulation. It sounds like like micromanaging these companies. It's one thing to say, right, I mean, you're in Canada, you should be serving a Canadian audience, but... Yeah, that, that's that's taking you pretty far. It is, and in fact, they're not saying you're in Canada, you should serve a Canadian audience. They're saying, we don't care where you are. Right. If Canadians are accessing this, we think we've got a right to regulate. And it will be open to the CRTC to decide where they grant exemptions, so under what circumstances do they say, okay, fine, we're not going to regulate your service or your site. But their starting point is that everybody, everywhere gets regulated by the Canadian right. And I don't know how that's even doable. I mean, take Netflix. Netflix is established in Canada. They, they seem perfectly happy to to play along here and, and invest in Canadian production. But take something like YouTube. I mean, does YouTube fall under the CRTC's purview? If I search for a topic uh, on YouTube and there's not enough Canadian options that come up, is YouTube going to get into trouble with the CRTC? I mean, how, how does this all work? In this vision, they would. YouTube's quite clearly covered. Uh, news aggregators are quite clearly covered. And so, yes, they could, in theory, say, for sites like that, you've got to ensure that a certain percentage of the content that you display is Canadian. You've got to ensure that the Canadian-specific content is made prominent, that's more prominent than other content. And if you're a YouTube, you've got to pay levy to help support the creation of other kinds of Canadian content as well. And what if they say, take a hike? Why should we do any of that? Well, then they say that the CRTC will have the ability to levy penalties that could run into the hundreds of millions of dollars. (laughs) There's still, of course, an enforcement question, but um, they, they recognize that enforcement may be difficult, and so they explicitly call for significant penalties that will act as a deterrent for not following these rules for large forum-based sites. They recognize that those large forum-based sites, um, you know, obviously have significant economic might, and so they want serious finding power for those that refuse to play along. So what about the, the level playing field argument? And, and I think there's a legitimate point. Obviously, look, the parent company of this radio station, I mean, private broadcasters in Canada are not just competing against each other. We're competing against Netflix and Spotify and, and the like. So... 
I mean, is, is there a different way of leveling that playing field? I don't know if this is necessarily the way, but how do we address that? I got to admit, I'm not convinced that the level playing field argument. This radio station has certain advantages that Netflix or Spotify doesn't have. You've got access to a spectrum and this signal and the distribution that comes with it uh, that is not available to an ordinary podcaster to one of these other players. And, and even more, if you think about conventional television broadcasters and broadcast distributors, they enjoy a host of things. Everything from simultaneous substitution that allows them to, to impose their signal over a U.S. signal, like we're going to see with the Super Bowl this weekend. They get must-carry rules that ensure that their channels are included in even basic cable packages so people are forced to pay for them. They have foreign investment limitations to ensure that there are a limited number of competitors. They get copyright rules if you're a broadcast distributor like a cable company that lets you redistribute the signal. We're talking about like a company like a Netflix or an Amazon. They get none of those things. They get, they get to compete in a marketplace where a subscriber can walk away tomorrow uh, if they're unhappy with the service that they're getting. And the notion that somehow it's a not a level playing field, I'd actually argue it's true. It's not. The playing field is tilted heavily towards broadcast in terms of the kinds of advantages that they have. And so to the extent to which they are asked to make a payment, required to make a payment, that is just the traditional regulatory quid pro quo that reflects all the advantages they have. Companies like Netflix and many of these Internet services just are not part of that same system. They don't enjoy those advantages. And arguing that they should be treated in the same way without any of the other regulatory advantages, in my view, is just long-term policy. Mm. But, I mean, in terms of those advantages, are, are, are they as much of an advantage as they used to be, or would they still be in 10 or 20 years? If, if we have a 5G network that allows Spotify to be punched up in your, your automobile as easily as the radio... Is that advantage still there? If if people are are you know cutting the cord, is are those advantages of, of you know mandated uh, cable carriage? Are those still advantages? Well, the day that we see the Bells and the Rogers and the other companies that have invested heavily in the broadcasters walk away from those broadcasters and say, you know what, licenses aren't worth the obligations anymore, is the day that we'll know that um, those advantages are not enough to get people to stay in the system. But I would argue we are nowhere near that at this point in time. Um, it's true. It's a tough environment, to be sure, and there is more and more choice. That just means that Canadians have more choice, and there is more competition, mm-hmm. and that those broadcasters need to be better. Not that uh, this, is, this is just not an attractive economic option for them, because, of course, if it wasn't, they would walk away. What about the the CBC and and the role of the public broadcaster? Uh, you know, making it it ad free and and making some pretty specific recommendations in terms of the CBC's mandate. What, what did you make of that aspect? Yeah, I mean, I think we we've seen some of those calls for some time, and but I think they they make some amount of sense. I mean, I think the extent to which we look at a public broadcaster and say that in many respects, some of the, what they're doing is indistinguishable from. Uh, conventional commercial broadcasters and that they're effectively directly competing in that space, that represents a problem. You know, I think if we are going to spend a billion dollars or more of tax dollars on a public broadcast, you've got to be getting something that you're not otherwise getting in the commercial space. And so arguing that one way to better distinguish between the public broadcaster and the private broadcaster is to move out of the commercial space, so make it uh, make it commercial free. That, of course, would free up uh, potentially ad revenue for the commercial broadcasters, and I think better allow the CBC to focus on kind of content that might not be as commercially viable in the same way that uh, some of the commercial broadcasters would focus on, but the message is that the public is willing to fund and back that, not because of the commercial viability, but because we think some of this content is important, and so we're willing to back it regardless of whether or not people want to support it. So in terms of some of the, these regulatory ideas that you've expressed concern about, I mean, is, is the bigger issue here that this is misguided, or is the bigger issue here just in terms of how ineffective a lot of this might be, or, or is it both? 
No, I, I well, I think some of it may be ineffective, but I think more fundamentally it is is misguided. I think it's frankly dangerous. Uh, I think that this notion of handing over this degree of power to the regulators, the government, the government period, in terms of determining what is credible news, what people should see, how it gets promoted, uh, I think is highly problematic. I also think, quite frankly, many of the recommendations, or some of the recommendations are offside our treaty obligations. We're introducing the the USMCA, the trade agreement with the United States, which I think has expressly certain provisions that this is offside, and even our basic constitution, a charter of rights and freedoms. This is clearly regulating speech, and candidly, if you take a look at the current environment, I don't think that it can be saved uh, as constitutional based on just how far it goes. All right, much more at michaelgeist.ca. Always appreciate the insight, Michael. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Michael Geist is Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. Uh, thinks this whole thing is a big mess. A mess. The headline on his uh, latest post at michaelgeist.ca that this is all a demonstrably false premise. That these internet regulations will not level the playing field, will not support Canadian stories, and will not save uh, industry. Well, but après midi, mes amis, conversation about bilingualism. Uh, as you can maybe gather, I'm, I'm not bilingual. But what, what does it mean that Canada is a bilingual country? I, I think it means that we have two official languages, right? Uh, but bilingualism in terms of individuals means that you're able to communicate in two languages. So that's a different kind of conversation. And how does one become bilingual? Now, full disclosure here, I've got two kids in the education system. My oldest is in uh, 12th grade, and she's gone through French immersion the whole way. For all intents and purposes, it's pretty bilingual, enough so that she mocks my very crude French. But is it something she's going to make use of after high school? I don't think so. I don't know how bilingual she'll be in 10 years. Uh, my son, on the other hand, was in French immersion for think, four or five years and, and opted to switch out of that. But it's not equally accessible uh, to Canadians across the country. So it's easier for some Canadians to be bilingual than others. When it comes to someone aspiring to be the prime minister of the country then, how relevant is all of this? That brings us to the conservative leadership race and the perceived front runner, Peter McKay, who may have an issue on this front. That he is not as bilingual as, well, say, the current prime minister of the country and, and even others that have come before him. So how much does that matter? Well, depends who you ask. Our next guest, though, has an interesting piece on all of this uh, up at NationalPost.com and in the pages of the National Post. Chris Selly is a columnist for the National Post and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Chris, how you doing? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Uh, good. Appreciate making some time for us here today. So what, what about all of this kind of struck a nerve for you? Well... <clears throat> I, it, you know, it wasn't Peter McKay. I mean, I, you know, I think that someone like Peter McKay, who's been in politics his whole life, mm-hmm. has held senior um, portfolios in, in the Harper government. It's it's actually quite surprising to me that his French isn't better. Um, it's funny, actually, how it, this sort of comes as a surprise. <laughs> like, oh, holy crap. <laughs> French isn't as good as everyone um, assumed. Yeah. But I think the, the reaction to that was whenever we have these discussions, inevitably there are people um, who sort of take it beyond that question of whether uh, the prime minister has to be bilingual because ultimately the voters are going to decide and say, well, you know, it's it's really not excusable um, for him to be bilingual, and and everyone has a chance to be bilingual, and um, you know what what it's 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 just sort of um, you know send your kids to French immersion. You know, the idea whenever someone suggests that it's difficult um, to learn a second language, um, it, it gets a lot of blowback in Canada. And, you know, a couple of people uh, mentioned this, uh, made this point that it's difficult. Um, my colleague Tyler Dawson, who's a, uh, at the National Post, and then Michelle Rempel, who's a, a conservative MP and might be running for the leadership uh, herself. And, and it, this blowback that people sort of got, like, no, it's not difficult, just just makes an effort, is really remarkable to me because, uh, and, and, and it annoys me because it's, uh, if you just go on Google <laughs> and spend two minutes, you will find... Uh, ample evidence that 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 uh access to french as a second language education across canada 
is incredibly limited mm-hmm. and frankly makes a mockery of the whole idea of a, of a bilingual country, to my mind. Yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah, my kids have been through it, but I mean, it, it was was kind of, you know, we were fortunate in a sense. I mean, it's circumstances, and it's, it just so happened that it was it was there, it was available, it was convenient uh, for us. But that, that's not the case for everybody. As you say, in a lot of parts of the country, there's there's so much demand for it that there are waiting lists in some cases. That it, It's really not an option for a lot of people who are even determined that their kids grow up speaking both languages. That's right. And, and, and it is only there for people who are determined that their kids grow up speaking both languages. And that's just, that's just a, a small minority of parents for a, a whole variety of reasons. I mean, a lot of people send their kids to French immersion not because they necessarily think that uh, their kids need French, but because they think it's, it's a good exercise in terms of learning um, other languages right. down the line, which it is. Which, I mean, um, it's an academic challenge in a way. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's not available. And, and, and in a bilingual country, like a, an actually seriously bilingual country, um, you wouldn't rely on parents to uh, teach the ki- kids to, to, to sort of take this very proactive step and jump through all the hoops that are sometimes necessary to get the kids into French immersion. You would be grabbing those kids and putting them in French class as a, as a regular part of the curriculum. And, you know, I grew up in Ontario and, and with all the advantages available to me in terms of, you know, I took French every year of elementary and high school, and I was really shocked. So I, I can understand how some people are surprised to learn this, but I was really amazed to see just how little access um, there is in parts of the country and, and, and how few students are actually studying it. I mean, we're, we're talking about 8% of grade 12 students in Canada are studying French. How can you possibly expect a significant number of, of um, Canadian children to emerge into adulthood bilingual if, if none of them are studying it after basically, or almost none of them are studying it after grade nine, and not because they're not interested, but because the courses aren't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not that I feel sorry for Peter McKay. <laughs> you know, he was a cabinet minister for however long. He had access to, I mean, Ministers can get, I think, like free one-on-one uh, French instruction on their own schedules. Um, so he had ev- every opportunity, but everyone else, but he was, you know, uh, but, but everyone else doesn't have that opportunity. And we're not laying the groundwork uh, to be able to expect anyone um, to, to, to be bilingual, frankly, un- unless, again, unless the parents have really uh, jumped through hoops. Right. So there's a political question, because a few people have texted to say, I mean, you know, English Canada probably wouldn't be too crazy about the idea of a, a francophone prime minister. Maybe that's true. But like you say, what's available to politicians is a different conversation. The question here is whether we've got a problem in this country. Does bilingualism mean that we have two official languages and they are equally protected as as official languages? Or does having a bilingual country mean that Canadians should speak both languages? Uh, and I mean, you know, I, there are bilingual countries, uh, other bilingual countries, um, you know, where people don't speak all the languages. And I think it is reasonable to, to expect, but I do think it's reasonable to expect a leader mm-hmm. um, to speak both of those languages. But what that means, especially in a country like Canada, that, you know, Canada is very unique in terms of bilingualism, whether whatever else you want to say about it. I mean, that's, that's simply true. I mean, British Columbia is thousands of miles away from Quebec, basically no one speaks French. French is not mandatory at right. any grade level in BC, which I think is hilarious for a, for a bilingual country. But it's totally understandable because, uh, you know, um, Mandarin, Punjabi, that's, that's going to make a lot more sense um, unless you, you have your kid, you, you, unless you have your eye on your kid becoming prime minister or a very senior civil servant. That's just, that's just going to make more sense. Uh, but... I, I think we need to. I think we need to look at it and realize that we do have a problem if we are going to start sort of tutting at adults for not being bilingual. I think we we need to at least recognize um, that official bilingualism is, is a bit of a, a. I mean, sham is kind of harsh, but it's it's a it's a. a um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's a mirage. Like it's 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 not a real thing. Uh, it's something that a, that a small minority of the population in very geographically concentrated areas have, and the rest of us don't. Um, and, and, and I don't know. I mean, there's probably no way to fix it because 
I mean, you know, the, 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 it, the, well, it the, would require a massive investment, and it, it's, it seems like a very political objective, right? And I mean, that's kind of the, the unspoken side of this is that globally, English really matters. And if you're a Francophone in Quebec, there's, there's kind of a built-in incentive to have some basic understanding of, of English. I think it's harder to make the case, as you say, beyond someone aspiring to be prime minister or senior bureaucrat, why it's important to learn French. And if we're just falling back on, well, it's Canada, you should... It, it does, does that justify a, a massive investment in, in bilingual education? I don't think it does, but I think we, we do need to recognize that we are putting barriers in place um, for people, you know, without realizing. We need to recognize that basically not every child is born with an equal chance of becoming Prime Minister of Canada or Supreme Court or, you know, Chief Justice of the right. Supreme Court. Um, that's something we wouldn't tolerate in any other sort of um uh, measure you, you know we, we we fight hard against you know all the obstacles the other obstacles poverty you know we're 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 constantly at war with that um but when it comes to um access to french education we just don't seem to be our hearts just don't seem to be in it and and as i say it's understandable and there are ways you know to improve it mm-hmm. um you know it, I mean, there is demand from parents for French, and it's not being met by uh, competent enough teachers in a lot of cases. I mean, there's this ridiculous survey that found that that found that 78, I think it was 75 percent of British Columbia um, core French teachers weren't comfortable speaking French. Well, what what the hell? <laughs> where, where, how do you? I've never heard of such a thing. Like, how do you teach French if you can't speak it? Why would you even bother to try? Now you can fix that using, you know, if if you want French speaking teachers, you can pay them more money. I mean, there's an idea. Um, but beyond that, but that you know, that's sort of that's fighting it at the margin. You're never gonna get, um, as you say, it would be an absolutely massive investment, and it would probably get a lot of blowback yeah. um, because it's a perfectly rational decision that that parents and and indeed students make that. They don't necessarily want to learn French, um, but I think it, at least we, we need to acknowledge that a lot of kids who do want to learn French can't, which is, to my mind, objectively ridiculous in, in a nominally bilingual country. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, that's the takeaway here. Much more at NationalPost.com. Chris, appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks, Rob. All right. Chris Selleck, columnist with the National Post, NationalPost.com. And that's, I think, the point here is that, you know, we're, we're not walking the walk. When it comes to this, and we're sending mixed messages. That, look, yes, I mean, the reality is, is probably going to be for a long time that the prime minister of this country speak both official languages. So there was some concern last night that there would be a, a crash uh, over the skies of Pittsburgh, well above the skies of Pittsburgh, uh, up in that part of the sky where the satellites was around. And there's a lot of satellites whizzing around up there. There's just a lot of stuff up there. Uh, And so even though this collision did not happen, it does highlight a real problem. There's a lot of space junk up there. And there's a lot of very large things that are flying around very quickly. And uh, if they crash into each other, that can cause problems. So these were two satellites that were set to pass one another uh, at around 6.39 local time uh, over Pittsburgh last night. Uh, people are watching this very closely, weren't sure what was going to happen. Uh, that the guess was probably somewhere within 15 to 30 meters of each other. But that doesn't leave a lot of room for error. If you're guessing 15 to 30, that's just as close as 15 to zero. And zero is a collision. Uh, so... There was some concern last night that that might happen. That didn't happen. So, indeed, these satellites did uh, just narrowly whiz past each other. But we may be in the same situation again. So, what, what is the concern about space junk collision? What kind of a, a risk or a threat does it pose? How did it get that way? I mean, obviously, there was a time not too long ago where there wasn't really anything up there. There's a lot of stuff up there now. Do we need to find a way to clean it up? Uh, well, someone who's been watching uh, all of this very closely is uh, Jonathan McDowell. 
He's an astronomer and astrophysicist with the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Jonathan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, There was certainly some uncertainty going into last night. Just how much uncertainty was there? Well, the the problem is that when you uh, have all these satellites whizzing around at uh, you know thousands of miles an hour, it's hard to predict precisely where they're going to be a day in advance, say, because there's all kinds of uh, um, you you have to measure the the orbit very precisely. Uh, a small error will give a big error a day from now, uh, and so the uncertainty on how far how close those satellites were were going to get. Uh, was about the same size as the satellites themselves. And if you imagine something coming past you sort of at arm's length at 30,000 miles an hour, that's pretty scary. No kidding. Uh, so as it turns out, they, they did pass one another, but was was that about how close they came? Do we know? Yeah, well, we, we don't know exactly, uh, but we think it was probably within um, something like 20, 30 meters, uh, which uh, is uh, is not much bigger than the satellites themselves. So, uh, and you, you had a, a one-ton spacecraft, kind of like a, a truck-sized old astronomical satellite, and uh, a much smaller satellite that had long wires coming out of it, booms that, that uh, could have uh, easily... Uh, slapped the the first satellite as it went by, um, so uh, so it was a you know a, a thing that we were quite concerned about and uh, rather unusual to get a pass this close. Indeed. Now, what what would have been the implication here if if these two had collided? I mean, it would have obliterated both of them. Obviously, was first of all, was there any threat to to anybody on the ground as a result? No, not at all. Uh, All the debris would have remained in orbit. Any that did re-enter would burn up in the atmosphere. So it wasn't a threat to people directly, but it was a threat to all the other satellites uh, in that orbit. And uh, this is, uh, uh, IRS is in an orbit that's uh, used by a lot of weather satellites, for example, um, uh, some communication satellites. And so uh, uh, a lot of valuable hardware there that doesn't really want thousands of pieces of hypersonic shrapnel uh, to dodge. So uh, we had a collision about uh, uh, 10 years ago of two satellites that created thousands of pieces of space junk. And we'd really like to avoid more of those, but we're getting more and more of these these close passes as the amount of traffic in space increases. Right. And I mean, as you say, there are a lot of satellites in orbit, but there's a lot of what we refer to as space junk up there. I mean, is, is it possible to quantify just how much debris or at least measurable pieces of debris we're dealing with up there? Right. We're, we're tracking about 19,000 objects in orbit around the Earth. And that's down to about a size of uh, a few inches. Uh, below that, we think there are many more, but uh, uh, but the radars aren't sensitive enough to pick them up. Uh, so, but but you know, even even a small piece, a few inches across, is enough to really hurt when it slams you at that speed. So uh, we're we're carefully tracking all of these objects. And uh, in you know the 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 real problem is the larger objects. If you if you have uh, um, a small debris hit, uh, that that's certainly bad. But if you have two large satellites hit each other, that could just create enormous amounts of debris. And the worry is that you could eventually get a chain reaction and turn all of this expensive hardware in Earth orbit to sort of metal confetti. Right, and I mean, is is there any way to to clean up any of this? Is there a way to mitigate the risk of these kinds of of collisions happening? Right, that's a great question. I, I mean, right now, what, mostly what people are trying to do is just not add to it as best we can. Yeah. And so in the old days, when these old satellites were launched, you just went, oh, space is big. We can throw whatever we want up there, and it'll never fill up. Well, you know, that's like we thought about the oceans, right? Yeah. Wrong. Uh, and and so we now add engines to satellites to bring them down out of orbit when their mission is over so that they don't stay up there cluttering up space but we're going to have to move to a more what we call active debris removal where we go up and start clearing up the old junk with space garbage trucks of some kind and people are just starting to do experiments on that right and i mean i suppose that if we get more collisions that just that that creates more debris right it adds it adds to that number 
That's exactly right. And so that's the, the worry is a chain reaction, right? Uh, and so it's not quite at that level yet, but with the plans to launch tens of thousands of new satellites in the coming years, uh, you know, increasing the number of stuff in, the amount of stuff in space by a significant amount, <coughs> pardon me, the, uh, um, you know, then we, we would start to be in real danger of an event like that. This is an international problem, too. And I mean, I, I guess, you know, people or countries, rather, I suppose, can't really lay claim to, to certain areas of space necessarily. So, I mean, is, is there any kind of international agreement or at least some level of cooperation on this? There is, yeah. So space is intrinsically global, right? If you're in a satellite, you cross country borders every few minutes. Mm -hmm. So trying to solve this on a per-country basis is just hopeless. Um, And so the space agencies have got together informally. uh, There's an interagency debris committee that uh, issues guidelines because no one can agree on treaties anymore. You know, the, the politics doesn't allow it. But you can get together, agree on guidelines, and then each of the individual space agencies tries to follow those guidelines. And so there's been some improvement over the, the past uh, uh, 10 years or so, but uh, but we really need to do better. Right. And I mean, you know, kind of the worst case scenario, you talk about those chain reactions. I mean, these satellites are obviously up there for a purpose. I mean, how potentially disruptive could kind of the worst case scenario be? Uh, well, uh, it, certainly a lot of uh, communication services now go through low-Earth orbit satellites. Uh, the GPS satellites are in a higher orbit. They're also vulnerable to space debris of different kinds. Uh, imagine if, uh, you know, if the GPS uh, system uh, went out right, no one would be able to find a way home anymore because no one could read maps now. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that in your daily life you depend on space without realizing it. Um, The new Internet of Things uh, is super dependent on relaying data through satellites uh, uh, to servers, and so uh, we're now getting more and more broadband Internet delivery through space. And and so all of these things uh, that we depend on uh, are uh, are, are based in space now, And, and so we really need to preserve... Uh, the security of outer space and and uh, not ruin it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like you say, I mean, there's some sighs of relief today. I guess we dodged a, a bullet almost literally in a way, but we still exactly, got, we've yeah. still got, we've still got a problem. We've still got an issue. We still have very much an issue. And uh, I think the, the trouble is that the rate of industrialization of space is really outpacing the rate uh, that uh, regulations can keep up with it. Uh, and uh, so, so we're we're in an era which is going to be a bit of a wild west, I think, uh, in, in space. And it's going to take maybe an actual collision that uh, ruins some th- some satellites before uh, the political will is there to really fix this. I, I hope I'm wrong about that, but that's my fear. All right, well, we'll leave it there, uh, Doctor McDowell. Appreciate your insight and in all of this, and thanks so much for making some time for us here today. You're welcome. There you go. That is uh, Jonathan McDowell, uh, astrophysicist at Harvard University, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Uh, so putting some perspective on what didn't happen last night, uh, but, but why it is significant that we do have uh, a space junk problem. Should men be able to become sperm donors after death? There are certainly some, some ethical issues around that. Uh, Just last week, there was a paper published in the Journal of Medical Ethics arguing that a man should be able to indicate that he wishes his sperm to be harvested after his death and put into a sperm bank for use by anyone, just in the same way that someone might consent to his organs being donated. Obviously, donating sperm is a little different than, than donating a kidney. But I think it does raise some interesting issues. Well, joining us to talk more about this uh, issue is the uh, author of this study. Uh, Dr. Nathan Hodson is a fellow at Harvard University's School of Public Health. Uh, Nathan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, from your perspective, what, what are the important issues here? And why, why was this something you wanted to take a closer look at? Well, the reason we wanted to think about it was really because um, we've known for a while that it's possible for men to have their sperm removed after they've died and to have that used in fertility treatment uh, for to successfully have healthy children. But we thought, since we're doing this at the moment, mainly within relationships, there's going to come a time in the future when people think about doing this 
outside of close relationships and doing it just to help out somebody who needs some bonus sperm. And we thought it was really important to get ahead and analyse the ethics of this before it starts happening and nobody's thought about it. So that, that is to say then that this is, for all intents and purposes, not happening now. At the moment, it's what's not happening is giving it... So what is happening is that um, wives and partners of men who've died um, have been using some sperm from those men. But what we haven't started doing yet is linking up men who've died and don't have somebody who wants to use their sperm after their death with people who need a sperm donor. So it's that connection that we're really interested in. Right. I mean, and is there a moral or ethical argument... That, that is currently being used that, that prevents that? At the moment, there are some legal potential obstacles um, which, which need further investigation. But, the, the, I mean, the issues are, can people consent to doing this? Uh, you know, we thought hard about this, and there's some literature out there saying that um, it might be okay to use a man's sperm after his death without his consent if he, he was in a relationship with somebody. But what we thought was actually, if we're giving this away to somebody else, it's really important that they've thought about that before their death. We're really going to want the men to have consented to this actively before they've died, and that's important for everyone involved, not least any donor-conceived children. Right, and, and so what, what might be the circumstances where... where I get, what, what kind of consent is needed? Let me put it that way. So... Um, in the UK, where we're working, the kind of consent that's needed to use anybody's sperm after their death is written consent. So it's, it's a pretty high standard. It's not like if they've just said at some point, oh, you know, I would quite like this. Uh, it's, it's really something that the courts take very seriously in law. In terms of what's ethical, um, I mean, it's difficult because normally, uh, because up until recently in the UK, people have had to... Um, actively get a donor card in order to have their organs used after their death. But that's changing so that there's going to be presumed consent. Everybody is presumed to want to be a solid organ donor unless they give their consent. So that change, so that could change the way we think about this sperm donation because surely I mean, we don't think it, anybody would want um, to presume consent for sperm from people who've died. Right, and I mean, you know, for men who are willing to be sperm donors, I mean, what what would be the reason why someone would wait until after death to to be a sperm donor? What what what's stopping those people from from being sperm donors while they're still alive? Mm. Well, what is it that's stopping us from being kidney donors while we're still alive? Not that it's, it's not a perfect comparison, but I think it helps to think about it that way. I don't know about you, but I haven't given away either of my kidneys, and that's because it really disrupts the, what your, your current life. I, you know, you have obligations to people at the moment, um, around and about. You have a job, you have family commitments. Um, and and so that, those are reasons why you might want, not want to give away a kidney. And if you think about similar things with sperm, you might not want to go for repeated um, sessions to, to, to make donations. You might not want to have, go through a lot of tests. Some people might not want to go through the genetic tests that are mm-hmm. involved. They might not want to think about the future. And the other thing is people might not want to, to have the potential that they have a genetic child out there in, in the future. And in the UK, that child can come and find the, uh, the donor after 18 years. They get information about them. So yeah. there's a number of reasons why people might not want to do it while they were still alive. Mm-hmm. And we think lots of those reasons maybe go away after people have passed on. Yeah, I don't think that's a good point. Uh, now, in terms of, of the reasons why we'd want to have this conversation, I mean, any conversation about organ donation is, is because we, we just don't have enough, right? Um, so is, is this in part to solve a problem? Is, is there a shortage when it comes to sperm donation in Western countries? Uh, absolutely. I mean, in the, the big problem we've had in the UK is that there's been um, a real drop in, in the amount, uh, you know, a real insufficiency of sperm donors, um, and they just can't bring it up people just don't want to do it it seems um, and possibly that's because of this lack of anonymity that i mentioned before possibly it's because of people not getting paid very much to do it but yeah so so there is a problem of a shortage of supply you're absolutely right uh, this would certainly be one way of addressing that then is the hope yeah we think it would be one way of addressing that shortage and the other ways you know we're uncomfortable with making sure that people can't it, some people would say, well, take away the anonymity 
and sperm donors. I'm not, I don't think that's right. I think people should be able to find out information about where they come from. And besides, people will use 23andMe or Ancestry.com to find them anyway. And then should we pay people more money? Well, I don't know if anybody really wants to increase the amount that we're paying people for donations because that's not necessarily the best way to come into the world anyway. In some, you know, in some senses, people might think, oh, you know, I'd rather that somebody had done this actively. So there's a lot of different issues going on with all these different ways of resolving the, uh, of resolving the sperm shortage. You're absolutely right about that. Now, logistically, um, I know, I mean, obviously, sperm can be frozen and, and stored for many years, but uh, after death, uh, for how long can, can sperm be harvested from somebody? So there's a 48, well, what we know at the moment is that up to 48 hours after a man died, his sperm can be taken out and used in fertility treatment to create a perfectly healthy child. It's interesting, too, and I know there was a court case in, in Canada, uh, a woman who wanted to extract and use her husband's sperm after he died. I, I think she ended up losing that case, if I'm not mistaken. But, I mean, it speaks to how carefully we approach these issues. And I guess in, in a situation where, you know, a child's being created, are, are there ethical issues then in, in bringing a child into the world, knowing right away that the father is not going to be there, that the father is dead. Is, is, is that unfair to the child? Well, I think that's, I think you've really got to the crux of the issue here, yeah. Is it, is it going to be okay? And in the case in, in BC, um, where that woman lost her bid to preserve sperm taken from her husband, um, yeah, you, can, you, know, you can see how that's, that's one kind of situation where someone would be brought into a family where the person who is identified as their father is no longer around. Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, whereas I suppose what we're suggesting is is that the person who would be identified as the father may well be there, you know, the, the social father, the father who's there uh, for you, you know, after school, um, takes you to sport games and stuff. They're still present right. in the thing that we're suggesting. So, um, but of course, you know, the interests of don't conceived people people who would be conceived through this, that, that's really paramount here, and it's really important to think about mm-hmm. how they could be served best by this. So as you conclude, it is both feasible and morally permissible for men to volunteer their sperm to be donated to strangers after death in order to ensure sufficient quantities of sperm with desired qualities. So mm-hmm. is, is this to get men thinking about it? Is this to get policymakers thinking about it? Where, where does this change in thinking begin? Well, we think that, yeah, there's two changes that need to go on. One is that I think people aren't necessarily thinking about the, the often silent experience of having fertility trouble. A lot of people don't want to talk about that, especially men who are having problems with, uh, with their sperm. Yeah, it's just not something we talk about. And so it's important that we think about this and also that we think about how as a society we're going to meet those problems, whether that's individually, like you said, with more donors. But also it's really important. You know, what, we're, what we're suggesting is that there's going to be subsequent steps um, of creating policies which um, which enable people, which bring people together, you know, the people who can give and the people who stand to benefit. We need to have uh, big policies to bring people together. Uh, it's not just a case of individuals kind of signing up for this. Very interesting. Well, we'll be there, Dr. Hodgson. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you very much. All right. Dr. Nathan Hodson, he's at Harvard University, a fellow at Harvard University School of Public Health, uh, originally uh, out of the UK, obviously, as noted there. Uh, so I think there's some interesting points he raises in all of this. I mean, yeah, that, that case in BC that went to court, that, that's a tricky one. Uh, and obviously a very emotional one on top of that. Uh, because you got uh, a wife who now suddenly is, is without a husband, that, that he died suddenly. And the idea, though, of still being able to to have a child with him was something that was obviously very important to her. In December 2019, a B.C. judge ruled on a case involving a woman who wished to extract and use her husband's sperm after he died suddenly. The sperm sat frozen for more than a year while she waited for judicial approval to use it. In the end, the judge ruled against her. The reason he gave is that there was no clear written consent from the man before he died. So maybe if there had been, it would be a different, different story. So, I mean, is that a conversation? that married couples should have. It's not a pleasant conversation, but uh, one that might have made a difference in this case. Now, the other issue that we're talking about here is the question of sperm donation, that there are a lot of couples um, who would like to have children who cannot, and, and, or even for individuals, I suppose, 
And this is one way of achieving that. Part of what the authors of this study are trying to address is the fact that there is a shortage when it comes to sperm donor. And as the guest pointed out, that it's not just as, it's so simple to say, well, if someone's willing to do it, they're going to go do it. There might be a lot of reasons why people are uncomfortable being a sperm donor while they're alive. But after they're dead, who cares? You don't have much to worry about after you're dead. I guess that's the one good thing about it. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.